Thank you for listening to this podcast episode from Bose Church. We pray this message blesses and encourages you. If you don't belong to a local church, we would love to see you on Sunday morning. Amen. All right, church, if you would, please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Uh, also, at this time, I'm going to ask our elementary age students that you can be dismissed out to the, the back center exit. Uh, the rest of us, we are going to be in Genesis chapter 4, starting in verse 13. Cain replied to the Lord, my punishment is too great for me to bear. You have banished me from the land and from your presence, and you have made me a homeless wanderer. Anyone who finds me will kill me. The Lord replied, no, for I will give a sevenfold punishment to anyone who kills you. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain to warn anyone who might try to kill him. So Cain left the Lord's presence and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Verse 17, Cain had sexual relations with his wife, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Then Cain founded a city which he named Enoch after his son. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. The title of my message this morning is From a Garden to Cities, a message on governance and government. Um, and as I was talking about it with my wife, Karen, um, I said, so should I make the message all about why people should vote for Donald Trump in 24? And, and she said, no, don't do that. I said, so should I then make the message all about voting for Joe Biden in 24? And she said, no, no, don't do that. And so I said, so you're telling me I can't make it like a political mascot? And she says, yeah, that's what I'm telling you. So um, this is not that kind of message. I'm not standing on a political platform. Ultimately, what I want us to see is that some of these issues and how we live in the world and how we operate under authority and within authority and how we promote authority and vote for authority, all of that's in the book. And... Um, Ultimately, at the end of the day, I decided I didn't want to uh, do that because uh, it would uh, not be too safe for me to do such things. Um, what makes you secure? What makes you secure? That, that, that's kind of like a loaded question, hard to answer, because secure about what? Maybe when you hear the word security, your mind maybe goes in a lot of different directions. Maybe when you hear security, you immediately go to finances and your idea of Security is financial security, and you have that, that savings account that's got a years of reserve, and, and you know it's for that rainy day, rainy days that do come. And so as long as I have that, then I'm safe, then I'm secure. Um, maybe for you, your mind didn't go to finances. Maybe you thought, what makes you secure? You thought about home protection, and you said, okay, well, I've got my ADT stickers on the front door window. Uh, I've got the alarm system and, you know, I'm secure. Or maybe for you, you're thinking, no, I've got the, the Remington 870 pumped, locked, cocked, and ready to rock, right? Like that's your idea of safety and security. Um, maybe for you, you don't hear um, those things. You, you hear, think, you, when you think about safety and security, you think health. And so when you think in ways of safety and security in regards to health, you, you think of a, a particular diet, you think of a certain level of exercise, you, you know, and you say, I'm a, I'm, or maybe you're thinking of healthcare and uh, health providers and insurances and all those things. And you're thinking safety, security, and your mind could just go in a variety of different directions. 
And, and those are the, the, the kind of more of the individual types of safety and security that we often think of. And then those are just a, a few. I, I mean, we are creatures that desire safety and security, both on an individual level and in a corporate level, right? And so um, beyond just the, the individual, um, uh, you know, when we think about the communal level, we pay taxes collectively based on the city that you're in. Your taxes are going to pay for, for things like law enforcement, for firefighters, for, for EMTs, and, and a whole, you know, even just a, a local level, a whole government system, right? And courts and, and uh, political officials, right? We, we have all of that. Well, then you think even at the state level, you still have state policing and you have a national guard and you have, you know, governmental structure and you have a governor and you have, you could list all the offices. We, we, we've set up these systems and these structures and even beyond just the state and you think nationally, we have an, a military by land and sea and air and, and we're just covered. And so, so ultimately, what, what does our, kind of our communal efforts teach us? that we're grasping for security, we're grasping for safety. We are trying to create a world in which we are safe. And, and so when you think about history and you think about people groups and societies, you think of government. That is the worlds that we've lived in. That's the worlds that we have tra transferred through through all of human history. We have created governments. And so why do governments exist? Why do we have such a strong feeling about our borders? Why do some more than others want the wall built so badly? Why, why do we train men and women in combat? Why do we have police? Why do we have an infrastructure with a national budget? Why do laws exist? Like, have you ever asked these questions? Because innately within the human experience, what we desire is we desire safety, security, and prosperity. And we think if we can create these worlds, we will have the best shot at having those things. And we're not too far off. That's not a bad idea. I mean, governing is not a bad idea. Government isn't a bad idea. Because here's what we'll see in some of our time this morning. That governance, law, order, Submission, these are God's ideas. Humanity didn't invent them. We didn't create law, we didn't create order, we didn't create any of it. God's design in Genesis 1 and 2, you, you see that God creates humanity, and not only does he create humanity, but he creates humanity to live in right relationship with him. But ultimately, God's governing his people. All, all throughout Genesis 1 and 2, you, you see this relationship that God has with his people, and it's good, and it's right. It's what, what the Hebrews, they, they would use a word called shalom. There was a perfect peace, a perfect harmony that existed with God and humanity in the garden, and God was governing the world that he created. He was providing, he was protecting, and he was creating laws all of that happened in Genesis 1 and 2. And in over and over, what you'll see in Genesis 1 and 2 is that God created, and then the thing that would follow each, every time, every time God creates, what you see is, and it was so or it was good. So God creates this harmonious creation, him and his people, living in a perfect world. I mean, I mean think of like an engine that's firing in all cylinders, right? It's happening as it should. It's working as it should, and God not only 
creates humanity in him, but he creates the rest of the world, and he creates trees, and he says, hey, hey, I've given you food, and he says, eat and enjoy, right? There was joy present in the garden. There was food on all these trees, and he says, he says, enjoy my creation, enjoy the world that I've created. And then we see God as provider, but in God being provider, he also allows them to work, right? You, you, you see a, what they would call um, the, the cultural mandate when he says, fill the earth and subdue it. Essentially, what, what God told his creation was he says, make the rest of the world look like Eden. It's quite the task, quite the job. And, and maybe you go into some parts of the, the great United States of America and you'd say, hey, I wonder if that is like Eden, right? You just see it's, it's a beautiful scene. It's a beautiful picture. I don't think we've done a great job at making the rest of the world be like Eden. Um, but he gives them this, this job. And he also gives them a command. Though he tells them, eat of the trees. Look, look at this. This is in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. It says this. But the Lord God warned him, him being Adam, you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden, verse 17, except... You know, there's a stipulation, there's a clause, there's a law, there's a command that's coming. He says, you accept the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. And I've always found that so interesting about the creation story, the creative narrative. As, as God creates the world and he creates human, humankind, male and female, he created them. He, he says, this was good. He says, this was a good thing. And then he... He creates them, though, without the knowledge of good and evil. And I think that speaks to God's governance in the garden, was that God was the determiner, the dictator of what was right and what was wrong, what was good and what was evil. Man mankind didn't know. He says, he says, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why? What, what would happen if you, got the, if you ate from the tree of the knowledge of good He says, you would be enlightened, you then would determine, you then would make the decisions, you then would be the dictator of what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's evil. And so that's what happens as the story goes. Adam and Eve are in the garden. There's the one tree. Why did he have to create that one tree, right? I mean, there's the one tree and it's God saying, don't eat from it. And then here comes the serpent, crafty, and says, no, no, no. You're not going to die. You're simply just going to know. You're simply just going to have the knowledge of good and evil. And then he says the very next thing, and this is the temptation of Satan, the scheme of the devil. Oh, you see this in the New Testament. In Ephesians, we talked about it. But the scheme of Satan from the very beginning is that he and you and I would, would attempt to be our own God, that we would sit on the own throne of our life. He says, no, you're not going to die. You're going to become just like God, knowing what's right and what's wrong. And so the temptation was simple. Do your own thing. Follow your own way. Govern in what ways you think are right. Rule in your own way. Be your own God. And so you see how governance now has been distorted We've distorted God's good and right design of God governing and God determining law, God determining what's right 
and what's wrong, and now humanity has taken that burden upon themselves and saying, hey, God, we know that you provided, we know that you care, we know that you love, but we're gonna handle it. We will take it from here. We have a very good idea of what's right and what's wrong, and that has been a train wreck throughout human history to allow man to dictate whether their passion is right or wrong. It's how you become, it's how you allow for a nation and a leader to uh, eradicate six million Jews. It's how you allow for uh, uh, um, a governmental system that looks at the African-American man and says he's three-fifths of a human. When we allow mankind to determine what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's evil. I don't think humanity has been positioned to carry the weight of trying to figure out what's right and what's wrong. And so humanity has sought their own governance and we've adopted our own ways of ruling and reigning and we've sought our own security and our own prosperity. We've become the dictators of good and evil. And so what happens is, is, as Adam and Eve are now outside the garden and what happens is very quickly, humanity tries to revert back to what they had in the garden. They try to revert very quickly back to having a structure of safety and security because Adam and Eve are outside the garden and very quickly what you'll see is the family dynamic breaks, right? The, the age old story, whether you grew up in the church or not, you probably heard of Cain and Abel. And, and, and Cain says, hey, Abel, let's go out to the field. Cain kills Abel. I'm guessing Christmas that year was awkward. Right, I, I mean, the family dynamic has, has now fractured in, in, in this first family story, in this first family scene. Cain kills Abel, and then Cain, in his anxiety, what, you, what, what we read in Genesis chapter four, is he becomes terrified at what his sin has caused. And he says, hey, hey God, I, I, can't, I, I can't fathom the punishment that, the, the, that, you've, that you've given to me. And, and it says that Cain wanders into the land of Nod. Now, before you think, wait, was, that the, was Nod the first city? Nod's the Hebrew word for wandering. He went to a place of wandering. He just wandered about. There was nowhere for him to run, nowhere for him to hide. And then it says, God says, Cain, don't, don't worry, man. I'm gonna put a hedge of protection on you. I'm, gonna, I'm literally gonna put a marker on you so that if people were to see you, they would see, hey, if I harm this guy, I'm directly going against God. I'm directly going against his protection and his, and so he says, don't worry, Ken, I got you. And once again, what you see is man say, God, I know what you're offering. I know the protection and the provision that you're offering me. And it says that Cain goes and builds a city. The first city that we see in the scripture was Cain building the city of Enoch. The city was a way of attempting to recreate Eden. It was to build walls and to create a sense of security from the rest of the world. Cain thought, if I can, if I can create my own world, if I can create my own structure, then, then in here, I'll be safe, I'll be good. I have a real shot at prosperity. Cain creates the city and he attempts to govern himself and his family and this is the baseline attempt for every other structure of governance since. And I cannot think of one example in human history where that has turned out good for a people group. 
Sure, there have been civilizations that have attempted to build a society, build a structure of governance, and they, they tried to, attempted to build that off of a belief about God, a belief about the Bible, a belief about their faith, whatever. They tried to, to do that. But here's even the problem with that if you create these walls and you create these boundaries and you're trying to attempt to create a world where everyone can have safety and security and prosperity and what you have all inside is humans and people running it are humans, what you're going to inevitably find is chaos. Humanity is never going to lead you to a utopia. Humanity is never going to lead you to a place of safety and security and prosperity. You see, the script, even humans with the best of intentions. I can point you to the book, and we can go through stories of kings and kingdoms that had very well good intentions that fall. The whole book of the Bible is filled with kings and kingdoms, and we're told that only one will last. Only Jesus, King Jesus, and his kingdom will last forever. Now, now I want to be really, really clear because maybe you're thinking I'm leading a revolt. I'm not. Um, uh, this morning, my intention is not to be anti-government, and I, and I can understand why the tone may even come across that way. Um, it would appear to me, reading through the scriptures, the New Testament, I think you could see government as a necessary evil within the world that we live. It's like what Benjamin Franklin said, if all men were angels, there would be no need for government. If we could just trust people to have the best of intentions and do the right thing and the good thing, then we wouldn't have to create any kind of levels of structure for safety and security. Because and what you see in the New Testament are things that, instructions of how to model ourselves, how to live in a world of structures of government. You see, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. You see, pray for your rulers and authorities. You see, submitting to governmental authorities. Romans 13 will go as far as to say that you shouldn't just submit to governmental authorities because of punishment, but you do so out of conscience. So what Paul says in Romans 13 is you don't just obey the law to not go to jail. That's a great thing. Don't want you to go to jail. But Paul says that's not why you do that though. It's even greater than that. You do, you obey the governing authorities and the laws and the lands that you live because it's the right thing to do, because it's the right thing to do. And he wrote that in a day and age where there was a growing acidity in the air towards followers of the way. Nero was, I don't know if you know this, maybe this is a news flash, but Nero, emperor, first century Rome, wasn't a huge fan of Christians. And Paul in Romans 13 would say, we don't just obey and respect laws because we don't go to jail. We do it because it's the right thing to do. We do it because it's the right thing to do. And so this doesn't mean that we are model citizens when we are in the majority. When Christian thought and practice is the majority in the culture, that doesn't mean we show love and care for our, the neighbor who agrees with us. We don't just love people because they agree with us because they're a part of our political clan and when we think all the same things and we vote all the same way. But no, 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 that's not, that's not why we are model citizens. That's not why we love our neighbor. It was in Jeremiah 29. This is um, a picture of God's people. 
And we love quoting Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. We love that verse. But if we understood the context of what's happening in Jeremiah 29, Jeremiah leading God's people in a, in a time of, of captivity where it's gone on for 400 years. I mean, this is generations have come and gone and the only life they ever experienced was under Babylonian captivity. And Babylon is kind of this picture, it's this empire um, reference all throughout the scripture. It was a real place, but they were evil people. I mean, they're just the picture of evil. And so they're under Babylonian captivity for 400 years. Years And what God ends up telling the prophet is, hey, it's not ending in the near distant future. But I've got you, and I haven't forgotten about you, and I know the plans I have for you. But so he's talking to these people that are in this captivity, that are going through a really, really hard time. And here's what God says to the prophet in Jeremiah 29, verse 4. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says to all the captives he's exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem. Build homes and plan to stay Plant gardens and eat the food that they produce. Marry and have children. Then find spouses for them so that you may have many grandchildren. Multiply. Do not dwindle away. And work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I've sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. Seek the welfare of the city to which I have sent you. I wonder what God would say to a generation of, of Americans here living in, you know, the 2020s and maybe you've become bittered towards government. You've become bittered, bittered towards politics and you've become embittered towards a society and a culture that, that, that seems to not want to promote um, biblical values. Maybe you'd say, we're, you know, our country is not what it was 60, 70 years ago. No, it's, it's not. Um, maybe think your country is gone, that we're no longer the land of the free. And, and if that's where you're sitting and that's the, the, the turmoil, the tension that you wrestle with, I wonder what that temptation is for you. M maybe the temptation is, hey, let's, let's stock up in our basement, let's be prepared to live underground for uh, the foreseeable future and let's not get married, let's not send out our kids to get married, let's not have kids, let's not have grandkids. Maybe it's okay, we, we, we need to just isolate, we need to hide, we need to enclose ourselves in. But that's not what God calls his people to. God calls his people even in the midst of being in captive. He says, seek the welfare of the city to which I've sent you to. We don't get to run, we don't get to hide. This is where he's placed us, this is our moment. This is our moment to spread the goodness of the Lord and the land that he's placed us. He has not positioned you in your stage and your place and, and any of it, he hasn't done so on accident. It's intentional. And God wants his people to seek the welfare of the city to where they have been called. And what humanity has continually done, though, throughout history is, is when, one, when one empire falls, when one kingdom fails to deliver on the security and the hope and the safety and the prosperity that we seek, we, we will look for another domain to do that for us. When, when, when once you 
thought that you had the utopia that you wanted, once you thought you had all the, the, the safety and, 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 and the prosperity, and when you found out that that didn't work, we run to what's next. We look to what's next. What is going to offer me the safety and security that I so desperately, innately desire? Who's gonna give it to me? And we can even see this on the national level. Like, in America, 2024, today, what you have is you have states that are dying. I, I mean, this isn't like political, like it is just literally raw data. You start looking at populations of states. We're seeing certain states booming. We're seeing certain states start struggling with, okay, where are we gonna put new builds and all those types of things? And then you have states that are really struggling economically and uh, numerically. And so we, 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 we can see this even nationally. We, 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 even in our imperfect system of government, we have ways of holding our peoples and our leaders accountable. Hey, if you're not doing it for us, we can go somewhere else who will. If you're not gonna provide, we will, we will find the safety, security, and prosperity we are seeking somewhere else. But it would be my contention or my belief that even if we move to the place that we thought was gonna deliver on all the various things that we want, that we think are gonna make us safe, you will still learn that a system of people governed by people will have flaws, be imperfect, and will still not be safe. You know what I'm saying when I say that? I'm saying that when you go to bed at night, you're still gonna have to lock your door. Even if you've got to the place that has all the right policies and all the right laws and all the right political leaders and figureheads, it's gonna be people running the show in a world of people governing over people. And I'm telling you, it does not lead to a utopia. Man, this is just kind of bleak. And one day, Jesus will return. Jesus will return and he, we will dwell with God and we're told that God will govern his people once again forever. And humanity will live in right relationship with God and it's there where we will see a land uh, that has no more tears or mourning or pain or sickness or death. Um, it's what St. Augustine wrote in, in City of God. He says this, the peace of the celestial city is the perfectly ordered and harmonious enjoyment of God and of one another in God. And Paul would say, hey, that's where our citizenship is. Like that celestial city, that, that kingdom of God, like that's where our citizenship ultimately lies. That's where our greatest allegiance is to. And so, and so, yeah, maybe you're living in the world and maybe you're living in a system and maybe you're living under a government and maybe you're living around people and laws that, that, that you just don't feel comfortable with. I, I think Paul would say yes and amen. Like, of course you shouldn't feel comfortable here. You are a sojourner. You are a person traveling through. Like, this world is not home. Don't get comfortable here. Don't. It's passing by. This is not home. This is not where we place all of our chips, all of our hopes, all of our dreams. Like, if that's it, I'm telling you, it's a faint, cheap hope that will not last will not last and will never deliver on those desires of safety, security, and prosperity. And yet it doesn't stop humanity from trying. And I don't think, I'm not telling you to not care about government. I'm not telling you don't care about politics. I'm not telling you don't care about positions. 
Like, are you not going to live just because you know you're going to die? No, you're going to do those things. But if we attempt to create a world without God, governed by people, for people, it's not going to deliver for us. Um, Mark Sayers, he's an author and a cultural commentator as well as a pastor in Australia. He wrote a book called A Non-Anxious Presence. And there he writes this. Any attempt to arrange the world as a functioning, peaceful place where humans can operate without God is a secular project. And there's a lot of that in our world. There's a lot of that in our world where, where, where we have seen societies and governments say the, the, the focal point of our message is we can do this without you. Watch how amazing we can make our land, how amazing we can make our culture. And the Bible would warn us, would warn us about those days of the peoples that do get really good at creating their own world and their own system and their own structure. They, they, get, they essentially get good at doing the whole building your own world thing. This is what the psalmist would write in Psalm 52. Look what happens to mighty warriors who do not trust in God. They trust their wealth instead and grow more and more bold in their wickedness. I'm gonna read that one more time. Psalm 52, verse seven. Look what happens to mighty warriors who do not trust in God. They trust their wealth instead and grow more and more bold in their wickedness. Essentially what the psalmist writes, he says, look at the, the, the nations, look at the lands that grow in their power, that grow in their might, that grow in their wealth. And all the while grow in their wickedness, grow in their opposition to God. And we don't even have to travel down memory lane. We don't have to travel down history to find examples of that. Like actively, 2024, we have several nations in our world that have grown very powerful, that have lots of means, that have created a whole world of, of a utopia. And they position themselves in direct opposition to God and they don't care. They don't care. And I think we just have to be careful and I think we have to be mindful to think that some nation or some culture or some society would actually thwart the, the armies of the living God. Like God allows kings and kingdoms to come and go. And, and to think that a society could grow so strong and be so powerful that, the, the, that, we, that we could just live in stark opposition. To, I mean, Rome, I mean, do, do you need a greater example? 1,500 years, four million miles of landmass said, we're going to take down this Jesus movement. And you, as a Jesus follower, can go there today, walk around the ruins of that city. It's a really beautiful thing to do, especially if you're going to stop and get some of the some pizza or something like that. I've done it. And so in light of our series, Reconstructing, we have seen a plethora of people who have looked at the church and said, hey, you know what, church? You have put too much hope, too much stock, too much of your, your identity into the political world. And I can't say that that critique isn't correct. Like I said last week as we opened up this series, like, like Jesus is okay with the critique of the church. Jesus did that to, to the religious leaders of his day. And we looked at that last week. 
Like, are we known more about who our Savior is than who we vote for? And if somewhere along the lines, those lines have gotten blurred, then then we need to get back to a singular message of of Jesus Christ and him crucified. When Paul came to Corinth, he says, I've resolved to know nothing else but Christ and him crucified. Like, if you're going to know anything about my life, the thing that you will know undoubtedly is that I love Jesus, that, that I've placed my hope, that I've placed my stock, that he is my salvation, He is my safety and my security, and I find my prosperity in him. That if you took everything else away from me and I still have Jesus, I would tell you that I have it all. Is that what the church is known for today? Or is it that we live in a land where, you know, our political leanings, our political positions aren't in the majority, and we just lose our minds? And I'm not saying this for the right or the left. I'm saying it's both. Like our identity has to be rooted in Jesus. And and so if what the world has seen of us is that we have placed our hope and our stock and our salvation in a person, I understand why they don't get on board with that. I can get that. And while I wanna say, hey culture, I'm, I'm, I'm understanding the language you are using, I also wanna say, hey church, um, Politics and faith both funnel into what we would call a worldview. And so when these thoughts and ideas are all kind of pooled together, I do understand, I can understand how at times there, there is overlap. I think some of that is inevitable. Um, and so that's what I'd say for those who are leaving the church, those who are ready to leave the church over politics is, hey, let's just be, let's be understanding that, that we, we live in a world that has gone polar And it's these ideas um, that really are about life and they're about human flourishing. And and so, okay, but we have to be able to learn to dialogue in a way, we have to be able to communicate ideas and thoughts and opinions in a way that would reflect our citizenship and our belonging to another kingdom. That people first and foremost would see that my ideas are rooted not in a political party, but in Jesus. And I know a lot of people aren't arguing that, and a lot of people would say, of course, that's what, but I'm just telling you, that's what, that's what the world is seeing. They are seeing us speaking more from a political state than a place about Jesus. And I just want us to get clear, and I want us to stay clear, and I don't want us to blur lines, and I, and I understand that will be hard in the days going forward. Because yeah, ultimately, you know, when you look back, even at the origin of, of separation of church and state, the origin was so that the church or the state would not infringe on, on the church's beliefs and ideas and faith practices. And so, so that's its origin. I mean, we're, we're free to believe what we believe. We're, we're, we are free to speak truth. We're free to do all those things. I think that scripture would call us to speak the truth in love, but, but, we, but we haven't been called to compromise. We haven't been called to be punching bags or floor mats. I'm not saying that you don't have to have, that you don't get to have an opinion or an idea. I'm just saying, where are people hearing that voice coming from? And, and, I, and I'm telling you, like, even last night, I'm sitting up with Karen and I'm saying, I'm struggling with this message. Like, this is not an easy one. Not that any of them are, but like this one, if I start rabbit trailing, I might not have a job on Monday. Um, 
But I struggle with, with even the whole topic and this whole idea of government and politics and how we find our place in the world as Christians. Because there's passages. There's passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 12, where Paul would go and say, hey, listen, church, we aren't the moral police for the society and the world. And he says that in 1 Corinthians 5, he says, who am I to judge those outside of the church? And he says that in a culture, in a context, where, where if you think about the, the sexual ethics of Corinth, I mean, I mean they have just, they've gone completely opposite of what Paul teaches. And he says, I'm not the judge of those people that are outside of the church. In the first century, too, there was a saying to act like a Corinthian was to act as an adulterer. And so when Paul says, who, who am I to judge those outside of the church? He's saying, I'm not the moral police for the world. I mean, I mean that's, I imagine the original audience are thinking, but, but Paul, don't you understand that that, 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 that doesn't have, I mean, that, that, that's not God's design, Paul, don't you get that? I think he does. I don't think he forgot about the cultural context because the very next verse, he's in verse 13 of Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians 5, he says, God will be the judge for those that are outside the church. He says, I'm not the, and so how do we live in this tension where we're understanding, okay, well, I can't hold the world accountable to the laws of God. Like, like that's not my job. That's God's job. But, but then, I'm also called to, to live in a world where we're a democratic republic and we're saying that the voice of the people is supposed to matter. And so um, don't I want to see uh, the fullness of life? Don't I want to see this, this you know, spread throughout the society and the culture? I mean, isn't Jesus the one that said, I've come to give you life and life more abundantly? Like, don't I want to spread his ideas in the world? Don't I want people to be held accountable to, to those types of ideas and those types of teachings. I mean, I mean, don't we want that? And so it's like, how do we legislate it? Do we not legislate it? I mean, these are the questions. Last night, I'm literally laying in bed thinking, what on earth do I say? I mean, how do we do this? Don't I want to encourage and promote and vote God with God's word as our guide, especially since we've been called to love our neighbor and seek the welfare of the city to which we've been called, and then I've actually been, as an American citizen in a democratic republic, been given a microphone and saying, make your voice count, make your voice matter, go and vote and go and do all those things. I mean, I mean so how do you bring these worlds together? Yes. Bring them together. That's the answer. Um, as I shared in the opening of our series, our call is that we would apprentice under Jesus. This, uh, the, the call on your and I's life as, 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 as Jesus followers is that we would be disciples of Jesus. And now when you think of this word disciple in, in the most basic meaning in its origin from the original Greek, like the basic, the most foundational thing that it means, it means a learner. And before we suppose our kind of our Western understanding of what a learner is, because oftentimes I think we think a learner, we think classroom. But, but in this context, I want you to think apprentice. Like you're learning under a master. The master is going to teach you to become something. 
Because that's what Jesus does for his disciples. He taught them to become something. He said, hey, this is how people are gonna know you're my disciples. He says, by, not by how much you know, not by what, how, what, what, what you wear, not by any of that. He says, you're going to, people are gonna know you're my disciple by how you love one another. The distinguishing factor of you in the world as a Jesus follower that somebody could see and say, yes, that's a Jesus follower. That's their identity. That's where they place their hope. That's where their salvation is, is that you would be seen by how you love one another, just as I have loved you. So, so do you see now that, that learner that is more of an apprentice because he's saying, I want you to do something just as I have done it. It's almost like he's like the, the mechanic and saying, hey, this is how you fix the engine. This is how, you, just as, just to do it just like I did. Like, like you just had an example for three years. Like, like live like me now in the world. And he was the embodiment of grace and truth. And so we are not people who are ready to compromise on what's right. That is not loving. That's not loving. The example we used last week was that, that airport illustration where if somebody came and said, hey, uh, I need to get to, to Dallas and, and I'm in and Tebby, you know, how do I get there? And I just said, get on any plane. That wouldn't be loving. It wouldn't be, hey, just follow whatever way you think might be right. That, that wouldn't be loving, but if that person came and said, hey, I'm really sick, I need to get to Detroit, like, like how do I get to Detroit? And I said, hey, it's 37D, 37D, get you to Detroit, it's the only flight there, it's an exclusive claim, but it's loving because it's true. So we haven't been called to this compromising truth, and we haven't been called to, to not be loving likewise, and so we have to live in that balance in the world that we're living in. When, when, when we're told that your voice matters, when we're told that, that, that you, you get to vote, how might you do that? What might you try to do? And I think that we're gonna have a hard time doing this perfectly. And we're gonna get a bit testy here in a second. I think it's gonna be much harder than we often realize of being this type of citizen in a world that's not our home. It will be much harder than instituting the right policies and the right legislations and instituting the right people in office. And I think somewhere along the lines, we have bought this idea that it will be get really easy and that it'll be really, that if we can just get the right people in the office and the right people and the right policies, then we're gonna get that safety and security and the prosperity that we've longed for. And I can give you several examples where I can say that doesn't work. That's not it. And here, here's where I said it's gonna get testy. Um, and here's what I mean why that doesn't work. If we see the day, and I hope that we do, where as a society at large, we deem killing babies as something that's reprehensible, that, that is not allowed, and I hope we do see that day come. That does not take the church off the hook for loving and caring for mothers and children in need. It doesn't. Maybe you got the right person. Maybe you got the right policy. Maybe you got the law that doesn't mean it leads to the safety, security, and prosperity that we've longed for. That doesn't mean our issues are fixed. That doesn't mean our problems are solved. 
And one of the things I think we can relish in is historically in sociology, uh, all point to this, that the church historically has cared about the world. Uh, I've referenced this book before. Um, uh, it was by a sociologist named Tom Holland. Um, it's called, the book's called Dominion, and the, the subtitle is How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. But um, it's about a 24-hour read on, on Audible. Um, but Tom Holland does a, a, a study on the effects that Christianity has had on in the world. And when you look at all these domains, like hospitals and orphanages and, and foster care and food pantries and homeless shelters, Christians have led the way. We have been the front runners. We have spent more dollars than any other group than you can imagine. Christians have led the way and say, church, I'm saying we can't give up on caring for our world, whether or not we're doing so by the means of a political power. That political power was not, it wasn't like when Jesus came on the side of the mountain, he didn't say, hey guys, if you could also swing by Herod and, and Caesar's place and, and get them over here too. Because if we can get them bought in on this, then we're really gonna reshape the world. No, a collective of people who are gonna live in submission to God, live by his authority and live out his law and his command in the world where we live. And I'm not saying that we should not seek on earth as it is in heaven. I'm just saying that we don't need a political kingdom to do so. And a political kingdom will never be the thing that saves people. Only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus can get us back to Eden. And as we approach November and it's getting closer and closer, you're gonna have groups and you're gonna have sides and both are gonna call you and petition you and tell you that there's the world to safety. They're what's gonna give you safety, security, and prosperity. And I'm telling you, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, it might be, I'm not, saying, I'm not saying they won't vote for the person that you think will be right for the job. But they will never deliver on safety, security, and prosperity for you. They can't do what only Jesus can do. And as the church, we know it's Jesus who gets us back to Eden. But the beautiful part of this story of governance and what you see is that God initially creates governance and he does so in a garden and mankind ruins that and they break, they leave and they go create a city from a garden to a city. And then in Revelation 21 and 22, this picture that John gets of the new city God doesn't bring them back to the garden. God redeems the idea of city and he makes a garden-like city where if you look at the descriptors of Revelation 21 and 22, what you'll see in this new city are all the descriptors that you see in Genesis 1 and 2 of the garden. He makes a garden-like city. And I wanna read this about how God redeems and restores what humanity has ruined in verse 2 of Revelation 21. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. And then he said to me, 
write this down, for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And he also said, it is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. All who are victorious will inherit all these blessings, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. How about you, but I'm longing for that Garden City day. I'm longing for that moment where God will be with his people and governing us forever. And we will experience all the peace and all the prosperity that you could have ever desired for here on this earth. God is the ruler, governing his people, providing and protecting. And until that day, until that day, we seek the welfare of the city to which we've been called. We pray for those in authorities. We render to Caesar what is Caesar's. We respect the laws of the land, and we never place our hope in the government. They are not our savior. The president will not do for you what you innately long and hope for. It's not to say that it doesn't matter. I'm saying it's just not salvific, and I'm saying it's not a place of salvation. But yes, make the rest of the world look like Eden. And church, I think that is still our task. For as messed up as the world may be, I think that's still our task, that we would fill the earth and subdue it, that we would see the rest of the world become like Eden. Let's do it, church. You guys up for the task? Were you with me? Am I alone? Okay. All right, church. That's the message today. Hopefully... Um, I don't get any emails later. <laughs> Let's pray.